Let's pause once again for prayer, shall we? Lord, we are so thankful this morning that when you call us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, you don't just simply leave us there, leave us alone, but Lord, you are ever working to transform us, to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, to mature us in Christ, And I pray, Lord, that this morning as we open your word again, that this would just be another peg in the chain, so to speak, of of you maturing us by your word, bringing things to our attention, perhaps that need to be brought to our attention. And Father, molding us, shaping us so that we look more and more like your son. Be with us this morning in your word this morning. Be powerful amongst us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's the first time I've had to shut this door (laughs) for a while. All right. There is an unfortunate trend that persists in some Christian circles, which is this, that many of us assume that our faith has mostly or only to do with the immaterial, the ethereal, uh, the inner, the invisible, the soul, while in actual fact, our faith also has a great deal to do with the material, amen? The bodily, the practical, the exterior, the concrete, and the visible. There is a down-to-earth earthiness about our Christian faith. Christianity is not a marshmallowy thing. Even as our faith does have to do, obviously, with lofty, unseen, spiritual realities, it also has to do with the way we raise our kids and the way we shop for clothing and the way we make breakfast, plant gardens, and spend our money. Well, the parable that Jesus will speak to us this morning is a parable that is very down to earth. It has to do with our day to day. Jesus addresses each of us here and he tells us, in fact, what we must do this very week. So without further ado, we want to go to the parable. If you have a Bible with you, please open to Luke chapter 16 and we'll begin at the first verse of Luke chapter 16. Jesus says to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. Now, let's stop right there and let's keep track of what's happening here. So far we have these two characters in the parable, a rich man and his manager. The rich man is a landowner. He owns a significant portion of land And the manager is the guy who runs business affairs on behalf of the rich man. The manager looks after the renting out of the rich man's land to various tenants. And the manager also collects rent from those tenants. He keeps the books for the boss, for the rich landowner. The last part of verse 1 says, 
that charges were brought to him, to the rich landowner, that this man, this manager, was wasting his possessions, wasting the landowner's possessions. So now there's a question mark, isn't there, around the manager? There's a question mark around the manager. Now the manager has been charged with mismanagement. It has been alleged that the manager has been irresponsible in some way with the rich man's possessions. Accusations have arisen concerning the manager and his dealings. And the question is, has the manager, in fact, been shady? Or is he innocent of the charges that have been brought against him? Verse 2, notice what happens. The rich landowner calls the manager into his office immediately, and he says to the manager, what is this I hear about you? Now, apparently, the rich landowner was not in any way interested in hearing any sort of answer to that question. The rich landowner was not interested in listening to any sort of defense that might come from his manager. Notice carefully here in the text that there is absolutely no investigation that is carried out concerning the charge, the allegation that had been levied against this manager. No investigation, no. In fact, immediately after the landowner asks this question, what is this I hear about you? Notice he then moves directly to firing his manager. No further discussion takes place. He simply says to the manager, turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Turn in the books and get out. You're fired. Now we wonder why the manager was punished like this so summarily and so severely before he had any chance to defend himself. Well, friends, as the story proceeds, it becomes crystal clear very quickly that the manager had no leg to stand on after all. Indeed, he was guilty of the charge. Notice what happens. Notice very carefully what happens. If you have your Bible in front of you, notice what happens in between verse 2 and verse 3, which is nothing. Nothing happens between verse 2 and verse 3. In other words, after hearing he's fired, the manager still doesn't put up any fuss whatsoever. Did you notice that? He makes no excuses. He does not try to defend himself. There's no point in mounting a defense. Why? Because he's clearly guilty of the charge of wasting his manager's possessions, and he knows it. He had been irresponsible, he had been careless, he had been a lousy manager. So again, notice we go from verse 2 with the firing to verses 3 and 4, which happen right after that very tense office meeting. 
Now the guilty as charged manager is out walking toward home, perhaps. He's talking to himself now and he's trying to sort out his next steps. Remember here that in verse two, the landowner had given his manager a little time, hadn't he? He'd given him a little time to go and fetch the account books and hand them in. So the clock is ticking. And the manager said to himself, if I had reverb here, I put it on so that it's kind of like he's talking to himself, but I don't, so I won't. He said to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. Notice this, I can't dig holes all day with this flimsy physique of mine and my bad back and I just can't bring myself to be a panhandler either. So what to do? Verse four, he has a eureka moment. I've got it. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Now notice something, friends, very carefully here. Notice that this shady, now unemployed manager is future focused. You notice that? He's future focused. This guy is aware that his being fired means that he's going to lose his income and thus he's going to lose his house. So he's decided on a plan of action that is gonna help his future. It's a plan that will allow him to have a place to stay after being booted out of his own place for failure to pay his rent. Well, what's the plan? We see what the plan is in verses five through seven. The manager here now carries out his plan. So here's the plan in action. So summoning his master's debtors, the rich landowner's debtors, one by one. So the manager brings in now each person who had been renting the rich man's land and it becomes very apparent here that the deal that had been struck with these renters was that they could work the land and profit from the yield, but their rent had to be paid to the owner with a cut of that yield. The manager says to the first tenant, how much do you owe my master? And the guy replies, a hundred measures of oil. A hundred measures of oil was about 3,000 to 3,500 liters of olive oil. The yield of 150 olive trees. This would be worth about three years worth of salary for the average worker. So this was a significant debt that this first renter had accrued. And it's right at this point, friends, that we see the manager's plan now kicking into action. He says to the first renter, notice what he says, oh, you owe 100 measures? Take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And in an instant, this renter's bill is cut in half. This is a 50% 
reduction of what he owed. So now, instead of having to pay three years worth of salary, it's only one and a half years. This is an offer too good to refuse. Verse seven, then this manager said to another, and how much do you owe? And the second renter replies, a hundred measures of wheat, which would be about 1,100 bushels of wheat or 100 acres worth of produce or seven and a half years worth of work for the average laborer. Seven and a half years, a hugely significant debt. It seems like this second guy had been arrears for a while, perhaps. The manager says to him, take your bill and write 80. So this guy gets a 20% reduction. The first guy had received 50%, but also 20%. This is an offer too good to pass up. Now, what's going on here with these sudden price slashes, these fire sales that the manager is offering to these right? What's the manager up to? And the first thing to say here is that many commentators on this text suggest that the amounts that are slashed off, so the 50% and the 20%, are perhaps a sort of commission that was supposed to go to the manager that he now deletes. He sacrifices his hefty commission, cuts it out of the picture. But of course, the renters, for their part, they would have no idea how much of the amount owing would have been commission and how much was actual rent. The renters just see 50% off and they see 20% off of what they owed. And the effect is that it makes them very grateful to the manager, yes? In their minds, the manager is doing them a real favor here by slashing rent like this. So now the renters are happy. They are grateful. And keep in mind also here, friends, that the, rent, the, the renters have no idea at this point that the manager has already been fired. For all they know, the manager is still employed. And surely, think the renters, the manager must have talked this price reduction over with the boss, with the rich landowner. So the manager here is doing the bidding of the rich landowner. And so the landowner, they think, he must be a pretty good guy too, authorizing his manager to come like this as he has and give us these generous price reductions. You see what the manager has done here? He's made the renters thankful to him and he's made the renters thankful to his boss who no doubt authorized this price reduction. And he's also made sure that the actual rent still gets paid to his boss 
It's just his own commission that's been deleted from the picture. And in a society like this one was, a, a society that, that based so much of what they did on reciprocity, we talked about that in an earlier parable, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, reciprocity, this good deed of slashing prices for the renters would not be forgotten. If this guy, if this manager later needed a place to stay, the renter's doors would be open to him since he had treated them so kindly. There would be reciprocity for a good deed done. We come then to verse 8, the last part of verse 8. All the accounting, all the calculating is now over. The debts are paid up. And the master commended the dishonest manager for what? Notice carefully. Notice that Jesus does not say here that the dishonest manager was commended for his dishonesty. Right? Let's face it, this manager was shady. His practices were questionable in this parable. The charge against him at the beginning of the parable had been true. He was guilty of sketchy financial practice. Jesus labels this manager as dishonest. And the manager is not to be commended for his dishonesty. Instead, he's commended by his boss for his shrewdness. For his shrewdness. Being caught in dishonesty at, as he was, this guy got clever. Are you with me? He got clever. He utilized his street smarts. Yes, he's a dishonest, worldly guy, but he acted in an astute sort of way. He worked a plan, listen, that would secure his future. He made it possible for himself to have a place to stay after he lost his own place. He used his head to ensure his own survival after the crisis of losing his income. Practical prudence. Practical smarts. Shrewdness. And notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 8. For the sons of this world, in other words, people like this conniving, worldly, dishonest manager, for the sons of this world, they are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What's happened in the parable? The dishonest manager has leveraged finances to prepare for his earthly future. This dishonest manager has come up with a clever financial plan that would ensure his own care later on when he lost his job and couldn't be hired anywhere else because he had a dishonest reputation. In the words of Helmut Tielica, the dishonest manager, quote, 
compelled money to perform a service. He compelled money to perform a service. And Jesus, friends, notice this, brothers and sisters, he's putting the question to us in verse 8, what about you, my followers, the sons and daughters of light? What about us Christians? Are you and I, the sons and daughters of light, are we as shrewd as this worldly, dishonest manager? Are you and I compelling our money, think about your pocketbook, are you and I compelling our money to serve kingdom purposes? Are we being shrewd under the God of heaven with our pocketbook. I told you this was going to be practical today. If this dishonest manager could so cleverly utilize money for his own self-serving ends, how much more should believers be utilizing money for kingdom ends? Amen? I'm going to say that one more time. If this dishonest manager could so cleverly utilize money for his own self-serving ends, how much more should believers in Jesus Christ be utilizing money for kingdom ends? And of course, using money appropriately for kingdom ends is part of our prep preparation for our eternal future, is it not? Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 18 and 19, listen to this, that we are to be, as Christians, as people of the church, generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. Generous and ready to share, thus storing up for ourselves as a good foundation for the future. Again, friends, if this worldly, shady, dishonest manager prepared so shrewdly for his earthly future, how much more should believers in Jesus Christ be generous in our giving with our eternal future in view? Yes? Listen, godly stewardship of the finances that we have been given is part of our worship to the Lord. And that godly stewardship is an evidence, listen, an evidence, it's an evidence of the grace that has been poured out upon us. When we steward the resources that we have, it does not save us. It does not put us in right relationship with God. Rather, that stewardship is evidence that we have been saved. Evidence that we are in right relationship with him. Which leads us to our very last verse this morning, verse 9. Jesus continues here by saying this, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of of unrighteous wealth 
so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, now this is a striking and somewhat peculiar verse in so many ways. Would you agree? At first glance, it almost sounds like Jesus is saying that we can buy our way into heaven. Or, put another way, it almost sounds as if Jesus is saying that the way that we use our wealth will itself determine whether we will be welcomed into heaven. But of course, with the rest of the Bible before us, we know that this is certainly not the case. Our salvation, our welcome into heaven comes how? Only by the shed blood of Jesus on the cross and the righteousness of Christ that is given to us and the faith in Christ that God births in us. So then how do we understand this rather peculiar, odd-sounding verse? Well, let's take time to walk through its major components just for a moment. So first the phrase, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So, so first of all here, we observe something quite basic, hopefully as we read this, which is that this is a command to us. Notice, this is a command to us. Jesus expects us to obey this command, believers, this very week. He fully expects us this week to be making friends for ourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. That's the first thing, it's a command. Second, on the subject of making friends, Jesus is not talking here about whining and dining people in order to buy their friendship. And that's not what he's talking about. Rather, he's talking to us about spending money, listen, spending money worshipfully with kingdom priorities clearly in view, spending for the purpose of gaining, ultimately, winning new believers, fellow disciples, friends. We look at the money that God has given to us and we use it shrewdly. We use it wisely. We use it prudently for kingdom ends. Yes, we have to make provision for our own needs. God knows that. But we rein in frivolous, purely consumeristic expenditures. In the words of Craig Blomberg in his book, Christians in an Age of Wealth, we free up some of our surplus funds for the purpose of giving to one or more of the three main areas of Christian giving. What are the three main areas of Christian giving? He says, the support of full-time ministry personnel, evangelism and, mission, evangelism and missions, second, and third, helping the poor. This is how we make friends for ourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. And it's called unrighteous here by Jesus because he knows that so easily and so often 
money is put to use for unrighteous reasons. Yes? Or as F.F. Bruce put it, Jesus knows that wealth is too often acquired unjustly and used for unjust ends. Listen, the same loony or toony that you may have dropped into the offering plate this morning to support ministry might have been employed in some past time by some other person for the purpose of buying a bag of cocaine. The same $5 bill that you gave to the homeless person on Thursday in the love of Christ may have been another person's ill-gotten gain at some point in the past. The point is that as followers of Jesus, we compel that dirty $5 bill, that tarnished loony to serve kingdom purposes. Why? Because we want to be as shrewd as serpents. Yes, shrewd as serpents, gentle as doves. We want to be as shrewd as serpents with the money that he's given us for his glory and for the benefit of our neighbor. We make good, God-centered uses of the resources that he has given us in this world. Craig Evans says this, that what Jesus is urging us to do here is to not overlook opportunities and resources that will sustain his people and advance the Christian mission. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, my dear friends, money and savings accounts and GICs and RSPs and Bitcoin will all fail one day. You cannot take a single penny. You cannot take a single material possession with you as you pass from this life into glory. We, my pastoral mentor used to say, he'd been to a lot of funerals, and he said, I've never seen a U-Haul at the side of the grave. The unrighteous wealth of this earth will have zero value when you die. Yes? So be shrewd with it now while there still is time. Spend it wisely now. Be prudent today with the resources that God gives to you. Do you know that everything you have has come from God? It's not yours. It's all come from God. Again, being shrewd in this way with money is evidence of God's grace in your life. Working in a godly way with what you've been given shows that indeed that you are his that he has saved you and you will be received by all those friends that you helped along in one way or another in this life in kingdom giving. You will be received by them into the eternal dwellings. Well, we said at the beginning today <clears throat> that our Christian faith has a great deal to do with the material, with the practical, 
the exterior, the concrete, the visible. There is an earthiness about our faith, a practicality. The rubber hits the road all the time (laughs) in the Christian faith. And today we've seen that following Christ directly impinges on our wallets. It's really quiet in here today. (laughs) It directly impinges on how we use our tens and our twenties and our tunies. This teaching from Jesus is practical and it is sobering. And isn't it interesting and very instructive that just a little later in the same 16th chapter of Luke, Jesus gives the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, which we will be looking at next Sunday, by the way, Lord willing. And we can read that parable of the rich man and Lazarus almost as a sort of object lesson of the parable that we walked through this morning. While still in his earthly life, the rich man in that parable fails to make friends by means of unrighteous wealth with poor Lazarus. And that failure translates in the parable into the rich man being without a friend to welcome him into eternal dwellings. The rich man ends up in Hades. And so my friend, the question is, what about you this week? What about me? Reflect on this with me. How will we apply the parable of the dishonest manager this week? And it's not an option to say I'm not going to apply it. We must apply this. We can't simply walk away from it. The firecracker's gone off and we have to deal with it. So maybe God has spoken to you today and he's drawn a question mark, perhaps, around an upcoming uh, purchase that is unnecessary, that is frivolous, that is unkingdom. If that's the case, will you reallocate the funds that you plan to spend on that, whatever it was, for some kingdom purpose? That would be an application of this be doers of the word and not hearers only. Or maybe God is nudging some of us to go ahead and contact that missionary that we know personally, and there are several here at Snowden, to ask that person, what are the needs? And how can I spend some of my surplus on supporting you and the ministry? Or maybe God is saying to us this, You've been planning this for a while, but go ahead now and sit down at the computer this very week and do some prayerful homework on mission organizations or missionaries who need financial support. Can I find a mission that is clearly about communicating the good news of the gospel that is inviting people to embrace Christ? Can I find a mission like that? Can I find a mission that is serving the least of these in the name of Jesus? And how can I support that mission with what God has given to me? How can I be shrewd with my money this week and next week? Again, friend, the question, how will you, how will I, obey the command of Jesus this week and apply this portion of his word. May God help each of us to do that. Finally, the last thing I'm gonna say, remember my fellow believer in Jesus. 
that your very life in Christ is the product of his shrewd spending. Yes? He paid the cost of your salvation with his lifeblood on the cross. What may have looked like his ugly defeat, if you would have been there that day and see Jesus hanging on the cross, beaten, scourged, crown of thorns on his head, he's hanging. What may have looked there as his defeat was in fact his shrewd victory, amen? His shrewd expenditure that bought your forgiveness. You have been bought with a high price indeed. He prepared your future at the cost of his own life. And so may his beautiful shrewdness in writing off your sin debt fuel your own shrewd and grateful spending for his kingdom this week. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are not content to simply leave us alone, leave us complacent. You want to change us and transform us and bring us from A to B to C to D. And Father, I pray that your spirit would continue to work on each of our hearts this week, speak to us, prompt us, nudge us to obey this word to obey Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, I thank you that you have not left us alone, that you have given us instruction, Lord, that brings life, life indeed. And we, Lord, pray that you would walk with us in every second of every day this week. Speak to us, walk with us, talk with us, and we will be careful to be doers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.